it was bound to happen. The story that we've been told about the costs and all the upsides of pursuing net zero are all good and well, but uh, a backlash was inevitable and for a number of related reasons. The story we've been told is that climate change is not just crackable, but that we here in the UK can stop causing climate change. And in doing so, it really isn't going to cost us very much at all. Never mind that the world is still 80% dependent on fossil fuels, that we've been adding two parts per million to the carbon concentration in the atmosphere every year since 1990. And the UK, even after the very wise and sensible decision to get out of coal, is still well over 70% dependent on fossil fuel. You know, globally, it's not going well. But, you know, we shouldn't be upset about that from the perspective of what we're doing domestically. Uh, We should plough ahead. And we should plough ahead because it isn't going to cost us very much. There's a huge upside. And we should plough ahead because we can put aside what the issues are with the supply chain and with what's going on in capital markets. Well, if something sounds too good to be true, that we can decarbonise and it's going to lower our bills, if it sounds too good to be true, then you know what? It probably is. And indeed, I think it is too good to be true. None of this detracts at any point from the necessity to address climate change, but it's really important that it's framed in a way which is consistent with the facts and takes account of the scale of the challenge and that we don't just tell people a story which we think in the short term will encourage them to be enthusiastic, but which turns out to be other than they have been told. So, renewables, 10 times cheaper than fossil fuels, or in the latest incarnation from the Shadow Secretary of State, about three times cheaper. We should pile on with net zero by 230 for the electricity system, six years' time, and we should do that because it's going to make our bills lower. Really? We're going to have this enormous transformation We're going to build, you know, 30, 50 gigawatts of offshore wind. We're going to rebuild the transmission networks. We're going to go all electric on the car front. We're going to rebuild the distribution networks to cope with decentralised energy and with all that car charging and all within uh, six years. Well, I doubt it very much. Unfortunately, because it would be great if all of this could be done And it was all so much cheaper than fossil fuels. But it's not, because every time you read a headline which says, you know, new wind farm, enough to power 10,000 homes or whatever, there's a little snag which isn't repeated that often, which is, in the press releases at least, which is that actually this is intermittent power. It's decentralised, it's low density and it's intermittent power. And it's usually at the geographical fringes of the energy systems. 
Intermittent power is desirable, but it's not as good as firm power. And trying to compare the costs of intermittent power as if it wasn't intermittent with firm power, which is firm, is not a legitimate exercise. And then there's the economic incoherence of saying, well, you know, the marginal cost of wind or solar is zero, or pretty close to zero, and therefore it's bound to be cheaper. Yes, it is low marginal cost, near zero marginal cost, but that doesn't make it near zero cost because, you know, near zero cost, zero marginal cost investment is lumps of capital. It's like actually utilities more generally. We don't say that because the marginal cost of water is zero, that water is going to be effectively free. Those fixed and sunk costs don't go away, nor do the costs of the backup that's required to service it. Now, none of that's an objection to doing this stuff. It's just that it's an illusion to say it's all cheap and free or going to be at least lowering our bills. And what's more, it goes to the heart of the public support for renewables. You know, intermittent technologies are going to need subsidies and support for a long time to come. If the enthusiasts who tell us it's 10 times cheaper or three times cheaper are right, then the logical consequence of what they say is that we should end subsidies today. We shouldn't have all these special auctions and special reserved CFDs for these different kinds of technologies. We shouldn't have all the other supports that are out there. You know what? It'll happen anyway, just like the iPhone happened anyway, because it was so much better than what went before. You know, we'll need these subsidies for a long time to come, and they're very important that they stay there. So in itself, renewables are not quite what some of the enthusiasts would tell us, and they're not quite what both Grant Shapps, when he was Secretary of State, and Ed Miliband tell us. It's a harder climb, and all that ancillary investment required to deal with the intermittency is going to come on your bills. Your electricity bills are not going down, except for the movements in the gas price. But that's just the start of it. What lies behind the transformation to a low-carbon economy is an enormous supply chain, which stretches from northwest China, where the Uyghurs are, let's say, suppressed, for solar panels using coal-intensive methods of production. It stretches to the cobalt mines in the Congo, to the lithium mines in Chile, and yes, to the nickel mines and refining on the cleared rainforest in Indonesia and Russia too. You know, this isn't a virtuous supply chain which is free of pollution. It's riddled with environmental challenges and these don't go away because you just focus on the carbon emissions that come from a wind farm or a solar panel installed in the UK. And then there's all the battery manufacture itself all that refining capacity that has to come. And you know what? Uh, virtually none of that is made in Britain. It's all going to be, or almost all going to be, imported from suppliers over which we have very little control. Again, not as straightforward as simply go from A, 
dirty fossil fuels to be net zero, clean, zero emissions, renewables and electric vehicles. And then there's a third problem. Most of the claims about these new technologies being cheaper than what went before and the whole program being one that's going to lower your electricity bills is that it was all looking out the back window to the world of negative real interest rates and near zero nominal interest rates. Capital and debt were effectively free. And like all such good things, it rarely lasts. What's now happened is the nominal interest rate's gone up from just above naught to five, and the real interest rate is moving into positive territory as inflation comes down. This is normal. This is the cost of capital going forward. This is what's going to have to lie behind capital-intensive projects in networks and in new technologies. So to pretend that we're all going to have a free ride in decarbonisation and to spell out that message to the public is a very dangerous thing to do when you discover that it isn't true and the public wakes up to the bills that are coming their way. And it's therefore no wonder, and it was, in my view, almost inevitable, that you would start to see the political consequences being reflected in some very hostile politics. The AFD in Germany boosted itself right up the opinion polls to become a contender amongst the leading parties on the back of revolts about changes to domestic heating. The Conservative Party in Britain reacted to the pressures by reiterating the desire not to raise bills and slipping back some of the targets a bit, actually targets which would have slipped anyway. The Dutch farmers have revolted against what's required for agriculture in the Netherlands, and there are similar ructions taking place in Ireland. Look forward, maybe a far-right a government in France going forward, look forward to a possibility of Trump returning in the US, add that to some of the more right-wing governments of Europe, look at the possible European parliamentary construction after the elections in June 24, and you see a really much more difficult political context within which to pursue net zero. Now, for some people, the implication is, oh, well, let's give up and move on to other things. You'll hardly see any reference to COP28 in the mainstream press. For example, people have got bored and they've got less interested. That's one reaction. Hostility is another to the very idea of addressing climate change. But I think that would be disastrous. And what we need to do is both change the narrative and make sure that we're being crystal clear about the realities of what's involved in the transition rather than pretending it's all going to be very easy, cheap and straightforward. We need to be honest about these costs and why we should pay them. We need to be honest about our carbon consumption and not just focus on our carbon production and be honest about measuring our emissions and look hard 
at, for example, the exemption of Drax from the numbers. These are big, big factors. And what we really should do is focus on those areas where we have a comparative advantage. You know, what is it that we can do to help the world decarbonise as opposed to get to just net zero carbon territorial production in the UK? And the answer to that question is multidimensional. But within it, one needs to look at concentrating resources on the places where we make the biggest contribution. And I'll list three. Offshore wind, because the North Sea is one of the best places in the world to develop those technologies. It's shallow. It's got good wind flows. Second, CCS. Why? Because the North Sea is one of the best places in the world to develop that technology, given the depleted wells, the pipelines, and all the expertise um, that exist around the now diminishing offshore oil and gas industry. And then, critically, research and development. We have a great research base for the size of the economy and the size of the population. This is at the cutting edge of world science. We can develop all sorts of technologies to help the world do the decarbonisation. So that's where net zero realism points. It points to telling people honestly what they are confronted with, telling them why they should make the contributions to address global warming and why we should concentrate the resources on those things which make the best impact on the world rather than try to do everything. Net zero realism is here. It's what we now have to deal with in a world of intermittency, in a world of complex supply chains, and in a world of much higher costs of capital. And that requires some quite radical rethinking and to stop the rhetoric which tells us it's all easy, it's all going to be lower bills, etc. It probably isn't. Thank you.